Hello and welcome along to episode 5 of ED's COP26 Covered Podcast. This episode is coming to you on Wednesday, the 3rd of November, here at the Scottish Events Campus in Glasgow. You're listening to the voice of ED's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm going to be taking over the podcast today, in a way. Um, So essentially, if you've been listening to the episode so far, you'll know it's been a sort of relay format between myself, our content director, Luke Nichols, and our content editor, Matt Mace. So we convene in the morning and the evening, and then sort of pass the veritable podcast baton throughout the day. But for Finance Day, I'm going to be taking on all of our guest interviews today because Luke and Matt have gone AWOL. Well, I should say that Luke has gone AWOL. I know exactly where Matt is. He's in the Blue Zone listening to events with speakers, including Mark Carney. He's tippity-tapping away on our live blog and on our news from the private sector today. Luke, I have absolutely no idea. I can only assume that the stress of sorting out the first four episodes of this podcast have rendered him unable to come to the mic this morning. Um, As I've mentioned, it's a Finance Day special, so this will be a special themed episode for today, speaking with people spread across the global financial sector, representing different aspects of this movement. And specifically for my first interview, I'm sitting here at around 10.30 in the morning in the green zone far smaller and far quieter than the blue zone and I'm delighted to segue into my first interview this morning with Ensure Our Future. As the name implies, Ensure Our Future is a campaign convening NGOs and movements globally trying to stop fossil fuel insurance and reinsurance, so that's for planned projects as well as existing projects, in line with what is needed for a transition to a clean energy future, but also a future in which the health, well-being and livelihoods of communities around these energy hubs are protected. So I'm delighted to be joined by Ensure Our Futures Global Coordinator, Peter Bossard. And we've just had a great panel discussion about their new scorecard and about what reinsurance, um, divestment and all manner of other topics mean across Europe, across the US and globally. Um, So for those who aren't familiar with Ensure Our Future, maybe it would be good to hear a little bit about who you are and what you do and why it's so important to bring together these NGOs and these social movements internationally. Yes, thank you, Sarah. The financial industry has made a lot of commitments to aligning their business with uh, net zero goals, but we know that a lot of public pressure is needed to actually make them move and civil society groups for many years have put the pressure on banks but also investors, asset managers and insurance companies to align their businesses with uh, the goals of the Paris Agreement and the Ensure Our Future campaign is kind of the insurance arm of this global network of campaigners. Great and it's been it's been good to see that network in action today and to see some of the culmination of that hard work in recent months um, notably the insurance scorecard um, officially launching this morning so for those who haven't had a chance to see it yet could you give us a rundown of the the headline findings? Yes every year we produce a report where we take stock of the action which the insurance industry has taken or has not taken in regards to fossil fuels and climate change and 
in the second part of the report, we also assess, compare and rank the 30 uh, major fossil fuel insurance companies on their policies. So we see who has been doing well and who is lagging behind. Um, today we published the fifth annual scorecard on insurance, fossil fuels and climate change. In a nutshell, we saw that the insurance industry has made more progress in moving away from coal. We are now at 35 coal exit policies, up from 23 a year ago. We are hearing from many coal companies around the world that they find it difficult to access insurance and if they can get insurance at a very high price. So uh, that is working, uh, but unfortunately we have not seen the same progress on oil and gas against the recommendations of the IEA and the IPCC report, etc. Insurers have so far not been prepared to stop insuring the expansion of oil and gas. And it would be good to hear a little bit more about how that picture is still possible. Something I took away from that that presentation is the idea that reinsurance and insurance are ultimately, in a way, buying themselves some time to come up with this. But as these reports from the IEA and IPCC have said, action needed to be yesterday. The second best time is now. And if we don't do it now, it will be too late. So what are some of the major reasons that these operations in oil and gas are still getting insured and reinsured? I see two main reasons why the insurers have so far not been, pe been prepared to take substantial action on oil and gas. The first is that unlike coal, oil and gas still has a social license to operate. Coal has become really toxic, whereas uh, even though oil and gas, of course, have as almost as high an impact on climate change as coal, uh, they don't have the bad reputation that coal has and so insurers think they can get away with it. And then of course the oil and gas insurance market, like the oil and gas sector more generally, is much bigger than the coal sector. There are more premiums at stake and so for now most insurers are prevaricating, are procrastinating, are saying oh we are engaging with these companies which they've done for more than five years and we haven't seen sufficient action so it's really time for them to get serious and stop ensuring the expansion but yeah the overall impression is that they're trying to buy themselves more time. And I wanted to come on to that engagement piece and that was touched on so I'd like to ask how we can prove or disprove that engagement is happening because often an argument against divestment is we are engaging and we need to do that to shift them so yeah how can we keep track of engagement we support engagement we engage the insurance industry we support that the insurance industry is engaging their customers but engagement has to be time bound has to be tied to specific expectations and so uh, the oil and gas industry has known for a long time that they have to stop expanding, that they have to align uh, their capital expenditures and their business strategies with the pathways, the 1.5 degree pathways of the IPCC and IEA. And so insurance companies should really be able to say, okay, we expect you to take these actions within 24 months at most. And if that's not happening, we will stop insuring you, we will divest from you. That has happened with coal and there is no good reason on earth why it shouldn't happen with oil and gas as well. When 
we get to the end of the engagement tether, all that can be done has been done. How do we make divestment work in that it doesn't just get passed on to someone who's less willing to be transparent, who's more willing to exploit resources to high emissions in, in the short term? We have seen in the coal sector that those who took action didn't simply lose their business to other insurers, but there was so much peer pressure, also created by the NGOs, that the market as a whole has shrunk. And so uh, the action that the insurers took were not symbolic, they had real impact. They did accelerate the transition from coal to renewable energy. And um, we will try to achieve the same for oil and gas once we see meaningful action from the first uh, big insurers, we will apply the peer pressure on everyone else and say, well, if insurer X has been doing it, why can't you? And so we, want to, we will certainly uh, try to make sure that they're not simply losing their business to the next best peer. So it's a case of like coal, it needs to be broadly uninsurable so that market does downsize and there's not a whole pocket that will take it over and exploit it, is that right? That is right. An additional special feature of the insurance market uh, will also help us here in that if, say, uh, Burger King went out of business tomorrow, uh, McDonald's would simply take over all their franchises. Uh, they would simply double their market share. The same wouldn't happen in insurance because insurance is all about managing and, and diversifying your risk. So no insurer wants to be overexposed in any given sector. And so there is a limit to how much uh, extra oil and gas insurer, insurance any particular carrier would, would take on. Fantastic. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here, so I'd just like to get your final thoughts and your hopes for the rest of Finance Day. And obviously, as we've heard, insurance is a majorly important part of the financial system, but we're expecting commitments from national banks, national governments, private sector banks, and all manner of other parts of the financial system. So what would you define as something that would make this day for you? What would what what would make it for you? And on the converse, what is something that would break it for you? What would really disappoint you to see today? The insurance industry, like the whole financial sector, have been under a lot of pressure to align their businesses with a 1.5 degree pathway. And so we, we are seeing this whole new wave of 1.5 commitments coming out. In principle, this is encouraging, but the test of the credibility of such commitments is really whether it is linked to short-term substantive action that we can uh, take today and that we can measure today and that are tangible. And so if it is simply more long-term commitments, that is not what we need anymore. We have seen such commitments since the Paris Agreement in 2015. So now what we really need is such commitments being linked to concrete action today. And I'm sure that's a thought that many people will share. The time for ambition into action is now and that words are no longer enough uh, on posters all over here and uh, on everybody's lips. So thank you so much for your time and I hope you have a great rest of your finance day. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Sarah. Same to you. It was at this point that the day took a turn. So instead of having three interviews today, we will be having 
two and instead of being in the green zone I'm going to head out and back towards the blue. See you shortly. Yes, as I've just explained, I'm here on the River Clyde this evening with James from UKSIF who has come in to save the day really. Um, having him on our Sussy Talk earlier this year, but he's here in the flesh now. So thank you so much, James. No worries. Great to meet you in real life. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, likewise, and obviously I could talk about it, but I'd like to hear it in, in your words, how you find the atmosphere here on um, Green Finance Day. I understand you've been to previous COPs, so maybe is there anything special about this one for you, especially as a UK organisation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so exciting to be here hosted in you know our own country um, where we're having a day dedicated to finance, which, of course, financial services is one of the UK's really big industries, um, and to have a conversation about how we can green finance, how we can make finance be part of the solution for sustainability, and where, where could we be better to do that than here in the UK? So it's, it's a great day. It's been a great day, great atmosphere, um, and some big announcements, um, you know, so taking us forward, I think. Yes, of course. And obviously we'd be remiss if we didn't come on to some of those things. Um, so big announcements from the GFANS, from um, international finance, from banks and from other parts of the financial systems. Lots on disclosures and reporting as well. Um, so what is your sort of early reaction to that? And maybe have you heard from your member organisations even about what they make of what's happened today? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, to be, even in the run up to this COP, the one of the amazing pieces of work that had been done was the net zero commitments that were coming in from across industry so we've got the net zero asset managers we've got asset owners we've got banks all now under obviously the umbrella of gfans which is reporting i think 40 percent of global assets under management now being covered by some sort of net zero commitment that is extraordinary and if that if that does what the what, what the government is you know its press releases hoping it will do it will make it it will really do that job of changing the architecture of finance and driving towards sustainability and I was meeting this morning with some business leaders in Edinburgh and they were you know my message to them was finance is flowing in this direction you know it won't be long before your bank manager your investors um, and other people knock on your door and ask you how your business which is in the real economy is adapting and changing to the to the climate that we're, that we're you know going to be seeing and how those businesses are driving towards net zero because that's where the money's flowing and that's what we needed to happen and that's why it's so important to have a finance day at COP. Well, I'm glad to hear about that, that sort of connection being made between the investors and the businesses that they're investing in and hopefully more of that um, over the coming days. Um, the, the other big piece, of course, today is transition plans, mandatory transition plans. Um, I, you know, there's there's been some a lot of different views about the, the nature of that, how that's going to work, but I think, you know, now that it's happening, now that there's going to be, you know, full economy-wide agreement on what this is going to look like, it's going to, you know, we, of course, there's a lot of work to do here. We look forward to influencing that discussion on what a good transition plan looks like. Um, but it's great to start seeing that ambition coming from the government. And I think that's been the thing that's been missing. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks from the government is what the government's going to do about it. And so investors have been kind of waiting, sitting there going, well, hang on, how is it that we're being told that we've got to do all this on net zero, but the government hasn't yet articulated what it's going to do on net zero? Right. And now what we're seeing is the net zero the net zero plan coming out from the government. We're seeing um, the, the government's roadmap. The government starting to give a shape of what the economy, the net zero economy is going to look like. What does the country look like? How do we live our lives in a net zero world? And that's, the shape of that's coming together now. And that's really important, really necessary. Still more to do, though. I'm not going to say the government's done it all. The budget statement was pretty disappointing last week um, uh, for its lack of reference to climate. So, you know, today makes up for it in some sense, but there's still a lot more work to do. 
Great, and I would actually like to come on to your highlights and lowlights, but to frame them specifically, in that earlier this year, I know your organisation came out with a policy vision, lots of points there. As you say, it's a mixed picture, good progress in some areas, two steps backwards on others, more information needed in others still. Um, so out of that vision, what stands out as something that really is materialising? And then what are you really disappointed that is still absent? So, you know, we have called for net zero to be at the heart of all policy making in the same way that you would expect a company that's, tra that's transitioned to net or, or committed to net zero to start considering how that will go through every decision that they're taking we now want to see that happening at the government level it's it's now having to, to a degree i think that that you know there is definitely consideration of net zero in a lot of government decisions but not enough and to have the fca have a net zero mandate the bank of england have a net zero mandate which has happened in the last year is brilliant you know these are things that we've called for but still more needs to happen and the government needs to really put net zero at the heart of its policy work but overall the policy vision is really actually you know doing great you know paving the way and we're feeling very proud to be part of a group of organizations that's making things happen for example the uk's national infrastructure bank with a net zero mandate that's something we called for along with a lot of others it's now happening net zero pensions and sustainability and pensions that's now happening with the new pensions act you know tcfd being rolled out across the economy you know, these are things that we've been calling for and pushing for. Um, and now seeing the sustainability disclosure regulations, we've just been announced as part of the group that's going to be working with the FCA to help advise on what they should be looking like and the green taxonomy as well. There is an awful lot of new regulation coming through. Now, of course, the challenge is how workable will this be? Um, how different are we going to be from Europe? How much does it include other things to climate like biodiversity? Um, and how, how is it making sure that this transition is as smooth and as seamless as possible and not just putting more regulatory burden in? Because what we do need to see is more work to build public confidence that when investors are talking about a fund that's green or saying a fund is green or when uh, uh, or when we're talking about stewardship and the active role we play in stewardship which is where we can have a really big impact we need the public to have confidence that that's real and probably we need a bit of regulatory support to do that. I wanted to come on to that actually because you've mentioned their sort of disclosure standards and reporting standards and how important that is and yes it's moving but as you say it shouldn't be another tick box exercise it should be something that levels the play playing field sorry so you have comparable data so that greenwash isn't happening whether that's a corporate net zero strategy or an ESG fund um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on how that can help unify the message and what needs to be done to go beyond that and engage the general public because we're talking here in terms like net zero and G fans and ESG when actually the average person is probably a bit too busy specializing in something else and yeah wants that trust and that certainty but also to be able to understand the information transparently. It's a, it's a really really good point an important point and at the moment yeah we are very much talking to ourselves as the industry and that's right because you know we've got a lot of work to do and it's obvious that acronyms are going to occur but we need to get beyond that and I think you know what the public wants to see what retail investors want to see is that they are getting the product that they think they're getting um, and you know the, the the FCA has talked in the past about a, you know a possible risk of mis-selling um, and when the regulator says things like that that's pretty pretty serious it shows you it's serious they think it's serious um, and that's that's partly what we've got the new uh, um, d uh, principles for how a fund is described we've got the green or well, getting the green taxonomy these are all designed to help build confidence in the system but I think I think more does need to be done here um, uh, the stewardship code again helping to do some of that but I think I think we have got a long way to go before we can really build public confidence and and 
you know, for, we did for Good Money Week, um, which happened in October, one of our partners commissioned some studies around um, what some of the concerns were that in the public. Um, it was a, a YouGov poll, what some of the concerns were, and uh, one of the conclusions was was trust, trust in the, in the in the industry doing what it says it's doing. Of course, and obviously we're all here as experts, but we all have individual banks um, as well. So good to see different parts of the system um, here today and separately to this podcast. We will have a video going live with um, NatWest and Royal Bank of Scotland. So a shameless plug to keep an eye out um, for that one. And I know they're friends of yours as well, James. Um, so it's getting very chilly here on the Clyde and there's a lot of vehicles doing three-point turns. Um, so I guess it would be good to round off with your final thoughts. We're coming to the end of finance um, day here. So I guess we, we're asking as well, what would make your day slash cop? And on the converse, what would really break your, your day slash cop? I understand that you're here until next week, so this is a, a bit of a moving feast. But to wrap up for this evening, James. I mean... I think one of the disappointments coming into this COP was that the world hadn't managed to secure, the rich world hadn't managed to secure the 100 billion per year, which is not actually very much money. We're talking about moving trillions um, from the financial services industry, um, and yet the, the world can't find 100 billion to support and, and give confidence to um, developing countries. Um, but I think at the other side of that, we're seeing new net zero commitments coming from all over the place. Obviously, they've got to be real. It's got to actually have something backing it up. Um, India's 2070 net zero commitment, that's a very long way away. It's easy to kick that into the long grass. We've got to make sure that they stick to that, ideally bring that forward. Um, Australia's net zero commitment, we've got to make sure it's real. Saudi Arabia's in the same category. Um, but I think I think, what's, I think what we're seeing is that the the activity and the action being undertaken by not just by politicians but but particularly by industry by businesses whether that's financial services or not is starting to get to this or, or appreciate the scale of the challenge um, and 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 just how urgently and how intensively we need to act and i think that's the first time i've really seen that scale of urgency being being driven forward in a cop and i think it's a really promising development of course, and definitely I think there's a lot of non-state action going on here, um, having heard from people that were in Paris and at prior COPs saying that it's just a completely different landscape even, that this used to be the domain of the UN and the parties, um, and now the conversation is much broader, and as you say, it's moving from that target setting that we've seen so much of in the past three years or so, to the how do we deliver and how do we hold all of these actors accountable so i think that's a great note to end on james thank you so much thank you very much great to be here um and yes as i've said um not getting busier here on the clyde but definitely getting colder um <laughs> definitely freezing. getting some some bikes ringing some police vans reversing a few royal mail vans reversing and so that's all we have for today so thank you so much for joining us um from finance day at the cop i think we're now going to head back to our accommodation and there i can tell you a little bit more about our listeners quiz of the day and about how to keep up to date with the future episodes so thank you and i'm going to pass on to myself in the very near future yes as i've just mentioned we have made it through finance day and i am back here at our accommodation in glasgow out of the wind on the clyde and a big thank you once again to peter and james for guesting on our podcast We're coming to the end of episode 5 of COP26 Covered for Finance Day, that's the 3rd of November. So quickly before I go, I wanted to remind you that we will be bringing you these podcasts every day through to the end of COP26. And you can find us on Apple, 
iTunes, Google, Spotify, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. So please don't forget to subscribe and you can keep up with us in the days to come. You can also recap on the first four episodes if you're not yet up to date. But whether you're in Glasgow or not this evening, um, I hope I've been able to bring you some of the action despite the diversion and see you at our next COP26 Covered podcast. Goodbye.